Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. At the video store I worked at at the mall, we would often eat our lunches in the back room if we had brought it from home. A lot of people would read while they ate, while others would use the little TV in the back to watch a video while they were eating. I had one co-worker who was really into video games, and he was especially memorable because he had an affection for the Atari Lynx, a system I was very interested in when I first saw it, although later on I would get the Game Boy rather than the Lynx mostly based on battery life. But he was such a passionate advocate for the Lynx that it was intriguing, and he spent most of his lunch breaks not even eating, just sitting at the desk in the back playing his Atari Lynx. There was something very unmistakable about his Atari Lynx because he had this small backpack he kept it in that was, I don't want to say bright green, but very noticeably green, a kind of lime color and in it he would keep the links, his games. A big problem that you have to deal with when you're working at a store is theft. A video store, especially at this time, was a very attractive place to steal from, so we were always trying to watch out for it. It would get really difficult if things got crowded, especially if there was only two people working, which happened quite frequently, and so if you were working the register at the front, it was very difficult to watch the back. And there was this blind spot right next to the door that led to the back room in our place. As is often the case, when it gets crowded, it gets crowded very fast. And I was working the front register, checking people out, and I had my coworker, the Lynx fan, who was working with me. But he was in the bathroom in the back at the time the crowd formed. So I remember hitting the intercom asking him to come to the front with no response. And I thought, oh, I hope he's not playing that Lynx and not paying attention. Then out of the corner of my eye, I saw the door open briefly in the back, and I thought, great, he's on the floor. He'll come to the front and help me. But a few seconds passed, and he didn't, and I busied myself on the register. Suddenly, he comes running out of the back and runs right by me out of the store, and I thought, well, that's weird. First of all, when you worked at a mall video store such as this, whenever you left the store, you had to do a pat-down meaning you had to pat yourself down and turn around so that people could see that you're not smuggling laser discs on you out of the store. I guess it had happened at other stores, but he ran right by me without even a fake pat down, which is often the pat downs that we did. And I couldn't figure out why. So I kind of went to the front and I saw him yelling at somebody. And then I noticed that somebody had his lime green bag with him. Somebody had popped into the back room briefly grabbed the first thing they saw, which was this bright lime green bag, and then left the store. I hadn't noticed because I had a line of people and I'm bringing up videotapes, but he wasn't having it. He just about tackled the guy, maybe 40 feet from the store, and grabbed onto the bag. Now you always think in movies, what do you do when you're trying to take back your property? Maybe you take a swing, maybe you tear it away and say something pithy. No, my coworker grabbed onto the bag, latched on, fell to the floor in the fetal position, and then refused to let go, even as the thief attempted to pull the bag away from him. This commotion 
attracted a lot of attention, including mall security, who started running toward this incident. By the time they had gotten there, the thief had decided that perhaps what was in this lime green bag wasn't worth being picked up by mall security and ran. Later we found out that he had gotten away. My coworker, relieved, carried his lime green bag with him for the rest of the day, and then we never saw it at the store again. It was such a precious collection to him that he didn't want to risk it. As it turned out, even the private spaces in our store weren't safe for such things. And now whenever I see an Atari Lynx, I can't help but think of that green bag and my coworker laying on the floor, holding on for dear life, refusing to let go of his most prized possession. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about that prized possession, the Atari Lynx. We'll talk about the people who helped create the Atari Lynx, the companies behind it. We'll talk a little bit about the technology, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. The Atari Lynx is a handheld console released by the Atari Corporation in 1989 in both North America and Europe and Japan in 1990. Before we get into the console itself, let's get a little background on the companies that made it. The first name you hear when you see the Lynx is Atari. And the Atari Corporation at this point is not the same Atari Corporation that made the early Atari VCS. This one was founded in 1984 by Jack Trammell of Trammell Technology, who you might know better as the founder of Commodore International, maker of Commodore Computers. He founded the company in January 1984 after he had resigned from Commodore. The name would change rather quickly when Warner Communications sold the home computing and console assets of Atari to Trammell in July of 1984. It was sold for $240 million in stock under the new company, and that new company was renamed the Atari Corporation. Trammell instantly went to work, shutting down branches, laying off staff, and trying to move inventory. They would use the money they got from selling the remaining inventory to help develop their 16-bit computer, the Atari ST, and then they would release the ST and update their 8-bit computer line. They would also keep their foot in the door of the console game, updating the original Atari 2600 as the Atari 2600 Junior, and then releasing the Atari 7800. At this point, Atari didn't have the reputation it used to have, and while the company would eventually make money again, it never regained the cachet of its earlier times. The fun is back! 
as you can see, with the 2600 from Atari. Still under 50 bucks, but wait, there's more. There's a stack of new games at the video store. In real sports boxing, the action's rough. If you're gonna make it, you got to be tough. Midnight Magic is an arcade blast. Like a pinball wizard, you got to be fast. Fire Solaris to protect your base. Then blast off into hyperspace. The fun is back. Oh, yes, sir. New 2600 games from Atari. While Atari would release the Lynx, the Lynx itself wouldn't exist without another company that you might have heard of, Epix. Epix was a video game developer and publisher and hardware maker that peaked in the 80s. It was founded as Automated Systems by John Freeman and Jim Connolly. The name Epix had actually been applied originally to their more action-oriented games, but then they realized it's a pretty great name and changed the company's name to that in 1983. The company itself has a fun origin story that involves Dungeons and Dragons. I read this online. It all started in 1977 when Susan Lee Merrow invited John Freeman to play a Dungeons and Dragons game hosted by two people, Jeff Johnson and Jim Connolly. Jim Connolly, one of the other founders. Connolly would later purchase a Commodore computer, the PET, to help with his dungeon mastering in the game. And he had this idea to write a computer game for that very Commodore, in the hopes that he could use it then as a tax write-off. Freeman had actually written articles on gaming and joined Connolly in creating this new space-themed war game. Freeman would do all of the game design, while Connolly would code the system in Pet Basic. The game they would release is Starfleet Orion, which came out around Thanksgiving of 1978, and that's when they formed Automated Systems. Because the game was written in BASIC, it was easy to port to other computers of the era, including the Apple II and the TRS-80. They would follow that with a sequel of sorts, Invasion Orion, but then they would create a game that's pretty well known, the Temple of Apshai. Temple of Apshai is a very popular game and very highly recommended at the time. It would even get two direct sequels. Now all of this was done on this basic game engine, and Freeman thought it would be a good idea to update the engine. He and Connolly disagreed and Freeman would leave to start his own company, leaving Connolly to run Epix. At this point, they would have financial difficulties and management would change hands, but yet Epix would persevere and would continue to make games that are well-remembered, most notably the games series, summer games, winter games, California games, basically sports games. They would also create some games based on licenses like G.I. Joe and Hot Wheels. They also started to dip their toe into the hardware business, making the very famous fast load cartridge for the Commodore 64, which would speed up loading of floppies. And another project which a lot of people owned was the Epix 500XJ joystick, which I thought was a pretty great joystick. It had a very ergonomic grip, and had really good sensitivity on the joystick, good action on it. This is the 500XJ from Epix. It is the highest scoring joystick that has ever been built. But what's even more amazing about the 500XJ than how fast it can go is how it feels once you get there. In 1986, Epic started to see that Commodore 64 was kind of getting old, and developing games for it in the long run might not be great for business. So they started to think, what could they do next? And they hired David Shannon Morse, 
to look at what they thought the future would be for consoles and games. It was David's son who mentioned to his father that he should come up with a portable gaming system. So Morse met with two of his former colleagues at the Amiga Corporation, Dave Needle and RJ Michael, to see what the feasibility might be on a portable gaming system. Robert RJ Michael was born in 1956. He's a programmer and hardware designer who's a legend in computing and video game circles. Not only did he contribute to the Atari Lynx, but he created the user interface for the Commodore Amiga and contributed to the design of the hardware. The other person that was brought in was Dave Lewis Needle, Dave Needle, who's a computer engineer who passed away in 2016. He was one of the designers and developers of the custom chips of the Amiga, which was just an incredible computer, which I need to cover in a future episode. Sadly, he passed away in 2016. This team of people thought that they could build a console, and this console would eventually become the Atari Lynx. Planning of the console began in 1986 and was completed in 1987, and Epix would premiere this new console, which they called the Epix Handy, at the Winter Consumer Electronics Show in January of 1989. Unfortunately, at the time, Epix was having some financial issues and tried to find a partner who could help them put this out. Sega, Nintendo, both declined. But Atari liked what they saw, and they needed a console, and they wanted to get in on what they saw could be a lucrative market. So they agreed that they would handle production and marketing, while Epix would handle software development. When Epix would declare bankruptcy later that year, Atari would then own the entire project. Humorously, to develop for the Lynx, you had to use an Amiga, and so Atari had to purchase Amigas from what had become their arch-rival, Commodore, in order to do software for the Lynx. The Handy looked very similar to the Atari Lynx. If you were to look at the two, you would say, well, that's an Atari Lynx with some different branding. There's actually a prototype of the Handy, and I'll post links to it in the show notes. But it was bought by someone who goes by the name Rygar online, and it's an odd-looking thing with these thick yellow buttons, and it had been picked up at a company sale and just found in a box with a bunch of other things. It's one of those great stories of a collector who is a giant Atari Lynx fan picking up a real treasure and then that treasure landing in the hands of the right person who is obviously going to take great care with it. So before I go deeper into the Lynx, I just want to talk a little bit about the overarching technology behind it because the Lynx is part of the fourth generation of computer and video games, which is this manufactured term that was started sort of in retrospect after a bunch of other generations of consoles and video games had come out. The fourth generation is more commonly referred to as the 16-bit era and began in October of 1987 with NEC Home Electronics PC Engine, which was called the TurboGrafx-16 in North America. But the consoles that would come to define this era were actually the Sega Genesis, and the Super NES. Another thing that would happen at this time was the first handheld systems that you would call real handheld systems as we see them today started to get released. And the two that would dominate that niche, although really one dominated that niche, and that would be the Nintendo Game Boy. The other would be the Sega Game Gear, which was released in 1990. So what is 16-bit? What does it mean? 
16-bit refers to the processor used in the console, and the numbers are referenced to the size of the pieces of data used by each processor. Older consoles like the NES, Nintendo Entertainment System, were 8-bit consoles that used 8-bit processors. A bit or binary digit is a basic unit of information used in computing. It is the amount of info that can be stored by a device, and it exists in two states, zero or one, so two distinct states. And it's that flipping of switches that allows you to do all of this processing. And so you could see why a jump to the 16-bit would be a big deal over 8-bit. And you can imagine if you had an array of switches in front of you doing all sorts of stuff, having more switches is much more useful than having less switches. That's just the nature of switches. Atari would change a few things from the handy to the Atari. They would make changes to the internal speaker and would remove the thumbstick on the control pad. A press demonstration in 1989 included this portable color entertainment system, and which would later be christened the Lynx. It had an initial retail price at about $180, which would be over $380 today. The launch went pretty well. They hired the highly regarded advertising firm Chiat de Mojo to do television commercials. They would also have a deal with Coca-Cola to feature the links on containers of high C at the time in connection with a promo that they were running. If you didn't hear the commercials at the time, they went a little something like this. Characters prefer links. Buy links now. Get NFL game free. Hey, Mr. Block, can I go to the bathroom? Two minutes. Introducing Lynx from Atari, the color video game you can get away with. Well, sometimes. On some Atari Lynx games, you can link up four players. But there's only ever one winner. Atari Lynx, the portable video arcade. Now the big question was, could the Lynx unseat the Game Boy, which had come out at around the same time? which was going to win. People just thought that the Lynx was more sophisticated and therefore more sophisticated means it's going to win. Larry Carlett, editor of Toy and Hobby World, a trade publication, said, The software drives everything, and there is no question that the Atari Lynx product is superior to Game Boy. But Nintendo is Nintendo, and they have the marketing muscle. If something has Nintendo's name on it, it's virtually guaranteed to sell. The launch would be successful, and Atari would sell 90% of the 50,000 units which it shipped during its limited launch in New York. In 1990, sales were about a half million units, and by 1991, Atari estimated sales at about 800,000, which Atari said was within their projections. On paper, the Atari Lynx seemed amazing. It was the first color handheld, it had a backlit display, a switchable right-handed, left-handed configuration so that anybody could play it, and the ability to network with 15 other units. Originally, this was supposed to be done through infrared. The problem was that when you pass through the infrared beam, it would interrupt the game, 
and so they switched to a cable-based system. The maximum number of stable players, even though you could get 15 units hooked up, was 8. The only 8-player game for the Atari Lynx was Todd's Adventure in Slime World. Now, there were some problems right away. One, the cartridges were very difficult to remove from the Atari Lynx. And secondly, this thing ate batteries like they were candy. And in July of 1991, Atari would introduce the Lynx 2. This included a new marketing campaign, new packaging. They would also, at this point, have introduced the better cartridge design to get it out easier. And this new system, which internally was referred to as the Lynx 2, had slightly better battery life, plus a cool new look. A stereo headphone, which replaced the mono headphone jack that the original had. It just looked sleeker. They would also drop any accessories, which would allow the price to go down to $99, in attempts to compete with Nintendo's much lower-priced Game Boy. The problem was that these improvements that they had were too little too late, And, more importantly, Nintendo is just a monster. They were really good at marketing themselves. So, despite the fact that the Lynx was technologically more impressive, it didn't have the right price point, it had really crummy battery life, and it just didn't have the games and marketing power that Nintendo brought to the Game Boy. It would also encounter competition from higher-end systems, including NEC's Turbo Express, And of course, Sega's Game Gear. And the thing that really held back the Game Gear was, again, battery life. And that thing ate batteries even more rapidly than the Lynx. In 93, Atari started to get ready for its new console, the Jaguar. And it started to realize that the Lynx was never going to win the portable console wars. And they started to shift their focus away from it. Fewer games would be released, and support for the Lynx was formally discontinued in 1995. They would sell 3 million Atari Lynx consoles, and for years you could buy these pretty cheap. But over time, they've developed quite a following as people start to realize just what an incredible piece of technology it was for the time. Plus, it has an interesting history and an intriguing cast of characters that make it a fun community to belong to. And while it doesn't have the homebrew, fan-made games of lots of other systems, they do exist. After the discontinuation of the Lynx, new games would continue to be manufactured. And if you don't own the original hardware, Atari Lynx emulators are out there. So you could play it locally on your computer. Just do a search for Atari Lynx emulator. The Atari Lynx is one of those great what-ifs. What if they had better battery life? What if they had outsold Nintendo? Would we still have Atari today in some form? Would we be playing games on our Lynx 8s at this point? The track record of Nintendo at the time, and even of Atari, points to that being very unlikely. But luckily there were fans of the system and a growing interest in retro gaming that has helped keep the Atari Lynx alive. So if you're a gaming collector or just interested in getting into retro gaming, and you want a console that's just a little different, but still has a lot of compelling things going for it, why not check out the Atari Lynx? You'll be glad you did. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. 
If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show. If you're a fan of the show and would like to give it a 5-star review, please go to wherever you download the show and give it a positive review if you can. Those reviews help other people find the show and help it grow. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show over on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, you can drop by patreon.com retroist. Supporters of the show get members-only podcasts, bonus tracks, and access to the Retroist Discord, which is a great retro community. I can't recommend it enough. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. not only would contribute to the Atari Lynx, and we'll talk. Vroom! I'm a motorcycle. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.